This episode of Good Morning Nancy contains discussions on self-harm, death by suicide, and sexual assault, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And it's time for a Good Morning Nancy special. Since there were no books in the world fit to read, I would write one. Shirley Jackson. Hey guys, it's our third Good Morning Nancy special. Wow! Wow. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who don't know, in between seasons, we like to spice things up a bit and do a special episode about a topic or a person that we are passionate about, and it always has something to do with horror. This season, we're going to be talking about the famous American author, Shirley Jackson. Now, many of you might know her as the author of the short story, The Lottery, and the novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which was turned into a film, The Haunting, in Mm. the 60s and also in the 90s. But you might not know about her life and her other amazing works. So that's what we're going to do today is tell you all about it right now. Now, I want to recognize author Ruth Franklin, who wrote the amazing book that we got most of our references from. The book is called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. And I suggest you pick up a copy straight away and read it because there's so much more to Jackson's story that because of time, we won't be able to cover here on the podcast. Like I said, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing read. And I've attached all of our other references in the show notes as well. Uh, But I've also attached the link to buy the book online. So definitely support Ruth Franklin. She's an amazing biographer. She did a great job on this book. So check it out. Mm -hmm. So we're also going to be spoiling most of the major plot points from Shirley Jackson's books. So please keep that in mind as you listen. Okay, with that said, let's get this morning started. Shirley's father's family history is a curious one. His father, Shirley's paternal grandfather, mysteriously lost his fortune and disappeared, leaving Shirley's teenage father, Leslie, to care for his mother and sisters in England. They eventually changed their name and buried any evidence of Leslie's father and the lost fortune and traveled across the ocean, and then the country to San Francisco to start over. Leslie worked odd jobs to support his family until he rose to chairman of the board for rapidly growing Trong Label and Lithograph Company. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. During his time at Trong Label, he met, quote, one of the prettiest girls in the neighborhood. That was Shirley's mother. Aww. Unlike Leslie, Geraldine's family history was no mystery. Ha ha ha. She was a member of one of the most elite families in San Francisco, the Bugbees. I love that last name, though, by the way. So great. (laughs) They were a family of famous San Franciscan architects who created mansions exclusively for the wealthy. Oh, my God. Oh, my God is right. (laughs) 
They seemed like an unlikely pair at first, but they both had the same goal, material wealth. Oh, wow. Get it. (laughs) They married on March 15th, 1916, and just nine months later, on December 14th, their first child and only girl, Shirley Hardy Jackson, was born. But unfortunately, Shirley was not born into a warm home. Nope. Geraldine felt that her pregnancy with Shirley was very inconvenient, and by all accounts, she was not pleased to have motherhood thrust upon her. She was a socialite who loved going to fancy events and parties wearing only the most elegant dresses. She used to appear regularly in the society pages, and being pregnant got in her way of having the life she loved. When Shirley was born, she was hardly the child of Geraldine's dreams. If she was going to have a daughter, the least she wanted was a pretty girl. But according to Shirley's daughter, Joanne, Geraldine got a lumpish redhead instead. Oh, that makes me so sad. (laughs) Oh my gosh. When Shirley's blonde, handsome brother, Barry, was born two years later, it was obvious who would become the object of Geraldine's affection. According to Ruth Franklin, Jackson's awareness that her mother had never loved her unconditionally, if at all, would be the source of sadness well into adulthood. Ugh. Mm. Throughout Shirley's young life, she would learn to entertain herself by drawing cartoons, reading Wizard of Oz books, making clothespin dolls, and writing in her multiple journals about boys, movie reviews, and her dreams of becoming a writer. It was also at this time that she was exposed to the occult, and we have her maternal grandmother, Mimi, to thank for that. Mimi. Oh, girl, Mimi. (laughs) Mimi Bugby became a Christian scientist in her later years and began experimenting with the beyond by conducting seances with a Ouija board. (laughs) Holy cats. She sounds like the coolest grandma ever. She would often ask Geraldine, Shirley, and Barry to use the Ouija board with her to contact spirits. Come on, kids. We're going to contact the spirits. Oh, my God. (laughs) Mimi. Oh, Mimi is life. (laughs) California life was a dream for Shirley. She later described it as a lost Eden with lush avocados and other tropical delicacies that were not yet available to those who lived on the East Coast. But as others escaped the Dust Bowl to move west, Shirley's family decided to pick up their roots and move east. She was 16 years old and she was devastated. She would have to look on the bright side and use this opportunity to recreate herself. Oh man, teenage years. No, the angsty. Worst, the worst time to move too. Oh, I was like 16? Seriously, when you already kind of have your friends set in place and then you gotta freaking uproot all of it? Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Oh. So, in 1933, Rochester, New York, was a flourishing city, but Shirley wasn't a fan. Golly, how I hate this town, she complained in her diary. (laughs) (laughs) And according to Ruth Franklin, quote, Shirley also developed hay fever immediately upon arrival, a problem that would plague her for the rest of her life. She was literally allergic to the Northeast. Same. (laughs) unfortunately shirley wasn't very popular in her new high school either which might have added to her resentment of the east coast she tried to fit in with her new classmates and would fill her calendar with parties home games and ice skating but it was to no avail it was no secret they all thought that she was a little odd 
She decided to not let her sadness show, so she made it appear like she preferred to be alone instead. (laughs) Jackson would write in her diary that the old Shirley was dead and that a new one had taken her place. It seemed to be the only way for her to cope with the tough school year that she was having. She was feeling a lot, and with her mother off trying to establish her own social life, Shirley was alone. She began to assign her various moods with nicknames as if they were characters. Her happiest persona was named Irish, and her New Year's resolution for 1934 was to be happy. Her writings suggest that she might have half-attempted suicide during these first few years in Rochester, though no particular event seems to have influenced her attempt. It might have been one thing or a number of things. We don't know. In 1934, Shirley applied to the University of Rochester, stating in her application that she wanted to attend in order to prepare for a career. Now, this might seem obvious to most of us, but remember, this was the early 1930s, and many women attended college just to find a husband. Oh, dear. And they were expected to find their husband in college as well. Oh, So Shirley was accepted to Rochester, but dorm life proved to be difficult at first when she watched a sorority initiation her first week that left her feeling shaken and sick. She wrote a lot during this time, mostly in the middle of the night, to the shock of her roommates. Oh, dear. Soon, she would make a new best friend, a French exchange student from Paris named Jean. She was right up Jackson's alley. Jean was sophisticated and full of life, and she encouraged Jackson's writing. That spring, Shirley would publish her very first story in Meliora, the school's women's literary magazine. She would date a man named Costia for a little while as well in Rochester. Wow, so many cool names. I know. (laughs) Shirley began studying more about the occult during her time in college as well, and she would write papers about witchcraft for her classes, and she would write about it a lot in her diary. But Shirley's happiness at Rochester would be short-lived. Her grades began to plummet, and she failed to attend her classes. She began to have dramatic mood swings. One moment, she'd fall into a dark depression, and the next day, she'd be just fine. Shirley and Jean began to quarrel a lot, and they wouldn't stop fighting until Jean moved back to Paris in 1935. Jackson was deeply saddened by Jean's departure, and she wrote in her journal, I went to college, and I had a friend, and she was kind to me, and we were happy together. Aww. She goes on to say, My friend was so strange that everyone, even the man I loved, thought that we were lesbians, and they used to talk about us, and I was afraid of them, and I hated them. Then I wanted to write stories about lesbians and how people misunderstood them. And finally, this man sent me away because I was a lesbian and my friend went away and I was alone. Oh, man. According to Ruth Franklin, though, it is unlikely that Shirley's friendship with Jean had a lesbian component or that their friendship was the reason Costia rejected her. If anything, Shirley was just trying to justify why everyone around her seemed to leave her, because she never once spoke or privately wrote about having sexual desires for women. Shirley would drop out of Rochester University shortly after Jean's departure, due to a severe mental breakdown. She went back home in hopes to recover, but being home just seemed to make things worse. Her mother constantly questioned her life choices and pressured her to marry someone rich so that she could be taken care of. In addition to that, she continued to be critical of Shirley's weight, looks, and fashion choices. 
Shirley's diary suggests that she was suffering greatly during this time. She described her life with words like evil omen and deadening, and tucked poems into her diary by others about death by suicide. In the summer and fall of 1936, Shirley locked herself in her bedroom and focused on her writing. She also dove deeper into learning about the occult and bought her first deck of tarot cards that summer and learned how to use them. By the spring of 1937, she was starting to feel more confident in herself and in her skills, and it was time to go back to school, but not to Rochester. Shirley applied to Syracuse University in the same fashion she applied for Rochester. She wrote on her application, I wish to further my writing career. Syracuse was, and still is, praised for its English and journalism programs and its liberal atmosphere. Shirley needed a change of pace, and this seemed to be the best place for her, and it turns out that it was. She started her classes in the fall of 1937 and loved that she was learning with fellow artists from all walks of life because, unlike Rochester, Syracuse let men and women attend classes together. In addition to her English courses, she also took linguistic, geology, and criminology courses. Yes. Yes is right. (laughs) To Shirley's delight, there were a great number of literary magazines on campus that she could submit to, the Syracusan and the Daily Orange. I think those are still around today, right? The Daily Oranges, definitely. Yeah. Oh, cool. Initially, she only left her dorm room for class and for meals, but she soon came into her own when she started her creative writing class. Her mental health improved tremendously, and the constant strain to be someone else diminished. She embraced that 1930s bohemian lifestyle and took up smoking, a habit that would last her entire life, and she hung out in cafes and libraries and carried around a notebook. She's the OG hipster. I she love it. She is. She's like a cute little beat poet. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> in February 1938, a new student magazine entitled The Threshold was created, and Shirley's new short story, Janice, opened the magazine. The story revolves around a woman who casually mentions that she attempted suicide that morning to her friends. The Threshold found its way into the hands of an English and journalism major named Stanley Hyman. He read Janice closed the magazine and demanded to know who this Shirley Jackson was because he had decided that he was going to marry her. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> a man who knows what he wants. <laughs> They first met on March 3rd, 1938, in the library's listening room, which was Shirley's favorite spot on campus. They got to know each other quickly because their interests were perfectly aligned. He fell in love with her writing first, so he encouraged her to write more and to write better and constantly gave her books to read that he thought she would love. Oh, what a dreamy man. Yeah, it's very romantic. Seriously. It starts off this way. Oh. <laughs> So Stanley once hoped to write fiction himself, but after reading Shirley's work, he knew he could never compete. Shirley was not as head over heels for Stanley as he was for her, and even though they began a relationship, she never thought that she would marry him. For one thing, she was almost three years older than him, so she worried about his immaturity. Another thing was his religion. Stanley was Jewish, and even though Shirley couldn't care less, she knew that mixing religions was frowned upon. When both of her parents discovered that they were dating, all hell broke loose. <laughs> oh, Lord. 
(laughs) That didn't stop them from seeing each other, though. In fact, it might have even fueled the fire because Shirley quickly began to realize that Stanley was a man whose intellect she could admire forever. They never seemed to run out of subjects to talk about. She had finally found a romantic partner who understood her and she him. There was just one problem. Stanley wanted to have an open relationship. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. It was no secret that Stanley saw multiple women on the side, but Shirley hoped that maybe if she took their relationship more seriously, he would only have eyes for her. Instead, he suggested that she see other men. <laughs> oh, no. It only works if both people are, are okay with it. Gotta be 100% <laughs> on both sides. Ugh. But she would only take him up on that offer once before, realizing she wasn't that kind of person. Oh, dear. I can only imagine the circumstance that might have happened there. Yeah. During their summer apart, they would write to each other almost twice a day until college classes started up again. Shirley hoped that this time apart would change Stanley's playboy ways, but he hadn't changed at all. He was firm in his belief that monogamy was philosophically and politically useless to the human race. Casual sex with other women meant nothing compared to his undying love for Shirley, and he could not understand why she didn't see that. Shirley would time and time again try to break up with him, but it was to no avail. They were too much in love. What a mess! <laughs> oh, Yeah, man. Uh, So, while at Syracuse, Shirley met a man by the name of Jay Williams. He was a friend of Stanley's, and he, like Shirley, was very interested in witchcraft and the occult. He made Stanley a talisman for protection, and he would often greet Shirley by saying, Have you performed any incantations lately? (laughs) Yes. He was an actor from New York City, and he was known for saying and doing outrageous things. For instance, he once told Shirley that he had a dead baby in his backpack and he planned to roast it over a fire that night. Ah, charming. One weekend, Shirley and Stanley went to Jay's apartment where he suggested that they conjure the devil. Casual. Casual Casual fun. (laughs) Shirley was pleased with this idea and asked Jay if the devil would give her anything she wanted. Jay replied, of course but for a price, and no price is too great for the devil. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) Jay began banging on a drum and then began speaking in a weird language as he pointed towards a dark corner of the room. Fearing that the devil was right behind her, Shirley became very frightened and started to cry. Stanley would later make fun of her for being so scared, but Shirley truly believed that Jay had summoned the devil that night. She would carry the fear she had that night with her for the rest of her life. Oh my god. In the summer of 1939, Shirley traveled out west with her parents and brother for a vacation. She visited her old family and friends in San Francisco and bought herself a charm bracelet covered in skulls. Oh, my God. Legit. She's incredible. (laughs) She wrote to Stanley every day, but Stanley, who had never gone past Chicago, was jealous of her freedom and her adventures. In his letters back, he would tell her about all of the women he was sleeping with while she was gone. He even mentioned how he was worried that one of them might be pregnant. She wasn't. (sighs) Oh. 
Furious, Shirley wrote a letter in response, but never sent it. She knew that it would do no good. Oh my god. When she returned to Syracuse for her last year, Shirley and Stanley would be inseparable once again, and they would succeed in creating a controversial student magazine called Spectre. Although the magazine would only last until they graduated, Shirley was able to publish multiple short stories and poems within the magazine. With graduation looming closer, Shirley and Stanley began to talk seriously about their future together. Stanley wanted to get married and have lots of children, but Shirley felt that that would ruin her whole life and her career. (laughs) But immediately after graduation, Stanley received a job with the New Republic magazine in New York City. One last time, he asked Shirley to marry him. He even gave her an engagement ring that she didn't wear for long because she threw it at his head in anger at one point. (laughs) She lost it? She threw it at him, and I guess it was gone after that. Oh. <laughs> like, it must have, like, fallen down a drain. I don't know. <laughs> Shirley. Eventually, Shirley would say yes, and the two were wed in an informal ceremony on August 13th, 1940. To avoid any controversy about her age, she listed her birth year as 1919 rather than 1916 on the marriage certificate. Together, her and Stanley would be a crazy bohemian couple in the big city. Wow, that's so wild. That was only a three-year difference between them, and it was that much of a scandal? Yeah. Holy cannoli. That is wild. Yeah. Ooh, Shirley. (laughs) Unfortunately for them both, the reputation for New York City being a mecca for bohemian writers and artists was already in decline when they got there. And they very soon began to feel the pinch of poverty. They were so desperate for money that Stanley got a second job at a sweatshop sewing bra straps, while Shirley maintained a series of odd jobs, including writing commercial scripts for products aimed at housewives. Oh, I bet she loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Not. Yeah. New York City life just wasn't cutting it. So when they saw an advertisement for a cabin in the country in southern New Hampshire, they jumped on it. The conditions were rustic, to say the least. There was no gas or electricity, and the only bathroom was an outhouse, but it was cheap and affordable. Stanley would have a hard time adjusting, but Shirley found it agreeable and began drawing and baking fresh bread on a regular basis. Wow, that sounds like me. Actually, when I was writing the script and I was reading it in the biography, I was like, this sounds like Abby's life. I love it. (laughs) Oh, Shirley. (laughs) I love her. She wasn't able to write as much as she wanted, though, because they only had one typewriter and Stanley commandeered it. Ugh. Gag me with a spoon. The winter in the cabin was unbearable, so the newlyweds spent the rest of the winter with friends in Syracuse. While there, Shirley realized she was pregnant, and Stanley began seeing other women again. Nice. Two things that just did not match for her. Mm -hmm. Great. According to her writings, Shirley greatly considered divorce, but didn't want to raise her baby on her own. So she wrote, Maybe when I have my baby, I can talk to it, and it will love me, and it won't grow up mean. Doesn't that just... Oh, that's heartbreaking. Make you want to cry. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. In 1943, Shirley would also be publishing her first short story in years with Alphonse, which she began writing once Stanley had started a new job. 
No longer needing to fight for her chance at the typewriter, Shirley was able to write freely again. Thank God. For the rest of her life, Shirley would struggle with being a mother, wife, and writer, and had suffered a dramatic dry spell in her writing for a few years. That was all about to change. She had a string of successes that year with her short stories and articles, and the next year as well, selling over a dozen stories in 1944, including four to The New Yorker. Get it, girl. I know. By the spring of 1945, Shirley and Stanley were living in Vermont, where Stanley was working as a teacher at an all-girls college, Bennington. His students were known to be unconventional and artsy, which frightened Shirley. Adjusting to being a faculty wife proved to be difficult for her. She felt threatened by Stanley's students and hated it when he would invite them over for dinner. The only thing that seemed to keep her going were her children and her writing. In the fall of 1946, Shirley began writing her first novel, The Road Through the Wall, and finished the first draft by January of 1947. But finding a publisher would prove to be difficult. Shirley began to lose hope, but Stanley wouldn't give up. He believed in her writing. He would sometimes personally deliver her manuscript to publishers to try to get them to read it. And finally, the new literary house, Farrar Strauss, bought the novel and signed Shirley for a two-book deal. Yay, Shirley! By early 1948, Shirley would be the mother of two children, Lawrence, Joanne, and pregnant with her third, Sally. She would also be the mother of her first novel, The Road Through the Wall, which was a fictionalized, semi-autobiographical book about her parents and her life in California. According to Ruth Franklin, friendships between girls or women are central to much of Jackson's work, and here she is a particularly close observer of the small secrets and rituals by which these intimacies are created. The Road Through the Wall was loved by few and hated by most, with the majority of critics being put off by the book's negative depiction of humanity. Shirley was not disheartened by the reaction. After all, most people don't like to hear the truth, even when it's portrayed in fiction. Yeah. And the reaction to The Road Through the Wall would be nothing compared to her most famous short story published just a few months later, The Lottery. Yeah, so what inspired Shirley Jackson to write The Lottery? A short story about a woman who is stoned to death by her family and friends? Oh. Is uh, shrouded in mystery. Okay. Some say she was inspired to write it after some neighborhood kids threw rocks at her. Others say it was because she was reading a book about picking victims for sacrifices. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But Shirley said that the idea came to her one bright morning while she was taking her daughter Joanne for a walk in her stroller. She wrote the first draft of the lottery by lunch the very same day. Wow. The lottery was published in The New Yorker on June 26, 1948. Ruth Franklin said, It is stunning to think that this story composed in only a few hours has proved to be one of the most read and discussed works of 20th century American fiction. Wow. It is well known, even among fresh Jackson fans, that the reactions to the lottery were just as infamous as the short story itself. The letters started arriving just after the story was published. There were over 300 letters, and of those 300, only about 13 were kind. Oh, 
know. Some readers felt that the story was utterly pointless. Some were completely baffled. Others thought that it was too shocking, gruesome, and outrageous. One reader, who was apparently a psychiatrist, said that he felt that the story was based on fact. Do tribunal rituals like the one shown in the lottery still exist? And if so, where? This is wild to me that she was criticized so much for it. Because, I mean, look at Poe's work. Or really any horror writer before her. Well, and Poe wasn't popular until he died, though. That is true. So she was still kicking when all this very controversial stuff was coming out. Oh, dang, Shirley. So the protagonist in the lottery, whose name is Tessie, uh, unfortunately becomes the victim to the town's ritualistic sacrifice. And she is much like Shirley Jackson in a number of ways. She's distracted, self-conscious, and has a disheveled appearance. (laughs) Many writers and scholars determined that the sacrificial aspect of the story could represent a woman's duty to sacrifice her hopes and dreams to become a housewife. And even with that sacrifice, they are still judged. And at the end of the lottery, Tessie is screaming as the stones are flying at her and killing her. She's screaming, it isn't fair, it isn't fair. Oh, At this time, Shirley's husband, Stanley, had also published a book called The Armed Vision, but it received terrible reviews and it only sold a little over a thousand copies. Oh my God. And despite the negative reactions from readers of The New Yorker, the lottery was celebrated in literary magazines and anthology books for years and years to come. The lottery was even considered a banned book in South Africa, which was a huge compliment to Shirley. Whoa! During the time after the lottery was released, Jackson had to slip back into the full-time role of housewife. According to the book The Feminine Mystique, post-war women were expected to be the perfect wives and mothers, with their highest ambition being a beautiful home with multiple beautiful children. Their only fight in life should be to get and then keep their husbands. Oh. These types of women are proud to put housewife down as their occupation. In September of 1948, just three months after the lottery was published, Jackson gave birth to her third child, Sally, also known as Sarah. When the clerk at the hospital asked for her occupation, Shirley told her, writer. The clerk immediately suggested housewife. Shirley insisted that her occupation was writer. I'll just put housewife, the clerk told her. Why would you even ask then? Seriously. (laughs) Oh my God. The lottery's success would also inspire a mainstream audience to look closely at her being a practicing witch. Oh. (laughs) W.G. Rogers wrote a profile of Shirley for the Associated Press titled, Shirley Jackson is sure enough a witch. Sure enough. (laughs) Oh, my God. The article discussed her using black magic to break someone's leg. Okay. And the practical use of incantations and magic for everyday life. Rogers remarked how many books Shirley had in her personal library about witchcraft and the occult and stated in his article, Miss Jackson writes not with a pen, but a broomstick. Wow. Jackson was a little embarrassed by all of the witchcraft talk and felt that the media was focusing too much on that side of her life. If I really had a broomstick, she wrote to her mother, 
I would fly to California and hide in your cellar. Oh. Jackson's magic was personal, and it was a piece of her housewife persona, whether others understood that or not. As she said in reference to Robert Johnson's song, Kind-Hearted Woman Blues, I'm a kind-hearted mama who studies evil all the time. Oh my God, what an incredible quote. Yes. I love it. Ugh. So in 1946, a few years before the lottery was even published, Shirley Jackson would become fascinated with the real-life disappearance of a Bennington College student named Paula Weldon. Paula left for a walk on a local trail and never returned. Shirley would write a short story based on the disappearance called The Missing Girl, but she would also write one of her most autobiographical novels in connection to it as well, Hangs a Man. By December 1st, 1950, Shirley's household consisted of herself, her husband Stanley, her children, Lawrence, Joanne, and baby Sarah, the dog Toby, and no kidding, six cats. Whew. All right. That's a busy <laughs> it's a household. Full house. Sure is. It's like a comedy. Like, I know. All of them together. Holy cats, literally. <laughs> <laughs> They had moved into an old colonial town called Westport, Connecticut. The town was considered, at the time, a center for idea people, like writers, actors, and artists. Although her stay in Westport would be short-lived due to nasty neighbors, it was here that Shirley finally began work on Hangs a Man. At 34 years old, and after just two weeks of lessons, Shirley finally received her driver's license. She feared she would stand out in this new town if she didn't get it, and since Stanley hated driving, she knew that she would have to bite the bullet. Turns out, she loved driving, and it was her way of being independent from Stanley and managing a new skill all her own. Man, she sounds more and more like me the more we go on. I love it. I love it so much. According to Ruth Franklin, driving would later be an important symbol of independence in Jackson's work. And hangs a man, the main character, Natalie, tries to run away but doesn't have her license. She ends up having to take the bus and is stopped before she can get too far. Jackson's publisher gave her $3,000 in mid-1950 in advance for Hangs a Man, which was scheduled to be released in April 1951. Yet 1950 would prove to be a difficult and distracting year. For the first time in a while, Shirley and her husband were doing well with money, so they were able to hire a full-time live-in maid named Emma. Shirley loved having Emma around. She was sweet, kind, and reliable. But one night, Shirley awoke to find Emma creepily standing next to her side of the bed. (laughs) Emma said, come downstairs. I want to show you something. Come as you are. Shirley followed Emma downstairs to her bedroom. Emma blankly pointed at her empty bed and said, There's a little girl in my bed playing with a bluebird, and there are people outside watching. (laughs) Gross. Shirley, who was rightly freaked out, went to wake up Stanley, who just brushed it off and retired to his study. Shirley called Emma a taxi and told her to go to her mother's house and rest. She never saw the maid again. Literally overnight, their sweet, dependable maid had turned into someone unrecognizable. Shirley wondered, can you cross a borderline as easily as that and never go back? Who can you really trust if anyone is capable of turning on a dime? Yuck. 
Not only was Emma's crack up a major wrench in the system, but Lawrence was hit by an old lady's car while he was riding his bike. His injuries were so bad that he nearly could have died. The hospital bills were tremendous, so after it was determined to be the driver's fault for hitting Lawrence, they waited to be paid by the old woman's insurance company. They refused, stating that there wasn't enough evidence. Shirley and Stanley had no choice but to sue the old woman making them the most hated family in town. <laughs> oh my god. The rich writers in this town are suing an old lady. Oh Can you imagine god. the gossip? I oh the hot goss that happened? Yeah. yeah, I can. To add to it all, Shirley was in a constant state of rage against her husband Stanley, who would force her into having sex with him on the regular while also sneaking out and seeing other women on the side. She wanted to leave him, but she was conflicted, thinking that it would be best for the children if they stayed together. Oh, that's so sad. It's no surprise that Hangs a Man is as weird as it is. Many consider it to be Jackson's most autobiographical, so it would make sense for her to start writing it in Westport, where her stress level was off the charts. She adds bits of her unhappy times at Rochester, Stanley's infidelities, literary allusions to Alice in Wonderland and escapism, and Emma's shocking descent into madness. On the surface, the novel is about a girl named Natalie Waite, who longs to escape her home life for college life. Her father is an egotistical writer, and her mother is domineering, while her younger brother seems to get all of the attention. Sound familiar? <laughs> When Natalie eventually escapes to college, she realizes that it doesn't give her the joy she hoped for. Little by little, Natalie's mind begins to unravel as she begins to question her surroundings, including a girl she meets by the name of Tony, and her own existence. Her last name is a reference to occultist Arthur E. Waite, who wrote a popular guide to tarot. The title, Hangs a Man, is in reference to the Hanged Man tarot card. This card is one of the most important in the deck, and it shows a man hanging upside down from a tree uh, from one leg. There's a strange but natural compulsion to turn the card right side up when one sees it. According to BiddyTarot.com, the hanged man can sometimes reflect that you are feeling stuck or restricted in your life, and it represents a reversal of your usual way of life and seeing the world from a completely different angle. Ultimately, Natalie has to look at her life differently in order to transcend. When released, Hangs a Man was a huge critical success, and it was mentioned in Time magazine next to Catcher in the Rye as one of the most successful U.S. novels of the year. That's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. However, around the time of its release, another book called Invisible Man by one of Stanley's friends, Ralph Ellison, was released and overshadowed Hangs a Man's book sales and critical acclaim. To learn more about this, I highly suggest reading Ruth Franklin's biography on Jackson as she compares The Invisible Man with Hangs a Man. Shirley was not discouraged by the first print of Hangs a Man not selling out. She had a few other books up her sleeve, one of which would be a bestseller. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? 
Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum. Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. It's a question that many people, including myself, ask when they find out that the woman who wrote dark fiction also wrote for the magazine's Good Housekeeping and Women's Home Companion? Incredible. (laughs) Starting in 1951, around the time of the birth of her youngest child, Barry, Shirley began to edit together some of the stories she wrote about her family and pets for the magazines, as well as putting together a few new essays for her next book, Life Among the Savages. Oh. A wide audience would eat up the adventures that Shirley and her children had together. There is no denying Shirley's skillful range from dark and disturbing to cute and funny. (laughs) Excellent. According to Ruth Franklin, Jackson essentially invented the form that has now become the modern day mommy blog. (laughs) A humorous, chatty, intelligently observed household chronicle. No one had written about life with children in quite this way before. Just like motherhood is not sentimentalized or idealized, neither are the children. Wow. It's believed that Stanley wasn't too keen on how Shirley portrayed him in her book, Life Among the Savages. He was hapless, clueless, and uninvolved in the upbringing of the children, according to her. Well... The only comment he ever made towards this was this quote for the Albany Times Union. He said, she has her career, I have mine. All right. Shortly before Life Among the Savages would be a huge hit among mothers in 1953, Shirley began reading a book by Morton Prince titled The Disassociation of a Personality. This, along with Shirley's own disassociative tendencies, would inspire her next dark novel, the bird's nest Mm. split personality seems to be the literary vogue this season one reviewer of the bird's nest commented in 1954 okay it's hard to blame the reviewer since the three faces of eve had also just been published the bird's nest much like hangs a man has a simple plot on the surface a young woman elizabeth richmond has multiple personality disorder wow According to Ruth Franklin, the idea that a woman's identity might comfortably encompass more than one persona, wife, mother, and professional, for instance, threatened a male-dominated culture invested in glorifying the stability of family life based on traditional gender relations and keeping women in the workforce. This anxiety is at the heart of the bird's nest, in which a dramatic battle of the wills takes place between a male doctor struggling to cure a patient on his terms, and her multiple personalities will not be easily subdued. Wow, it kind of reminds me of cat people. 
Yeah, man. Whoa. Whoa. That's nuts. It's no coincidence that Shirley named the male psychiatrist Dr. Wright. (laughs) Get it, Shirley? The title of the book is in relation to a nursery rhyme, which is as follows. Elizabeth, Beth, Betsy, and Bess. They all went together to seek a bird's nest. They found a bird's nest with five eggs in. They all took one and left four in. Wow. Obviously, the four characters mentioned in the rhyme are the same person. Elizabeth, Betsy, Beth, Bess. Those are all nicknames for Elizabeth, right? Man. And Shirley, of course, named Elizabeth's other personalities Beth, Betsy, and Bess. Wow. Dang, Shirley. So when the book was sent to her publishers, they immediately could see how much her novel writing had improved since Hangs a Man and The Road Through the Wall. They wrote to her and said, you have written a simply beautiful and wonderful novel. But this good news in Shirley's life would be short-lived. She was still trying to find a way to leave her husband Stanley. He was still having affairs with his young female students, and she complained to him that she and their family were nothing compared to his 300 beloved babies. Shirley began to get an unusual general fear, which applied to all things in her life, security, work, and health. She began crying in jags, having horrible nightmares, and walking in her sleep. She started to self-medicate by drinking heavily. As a result, she gained more weight, and her mother wouldn't let her forget it. When The Bird's Nest was released, many of the reviewers confused Elizabeth's disassociative disorder with schizophrenia or with just simple womanly hysteria. Oh, God. This distressed Shirley greatly. If her main character was just quote unquote crazy, then that meant all of the women in her generation were too. Mm. <laughs> Well, after Shirley finished The Bird's Nest, she didn't take any time off like she probably should have. Instead, she jumped right back to her typewriter and began writing a young adult book on the Salem Witch Trials. She already had enough material in her own personal library to write the book, and after the heaviness that was The Bird's Nest, a children's book was exactly what she needed to worry about. She finished it in just one month. Type, 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 bang, done. Okay, Shirley. (laughs) Witches! Publish. (laughs) I love it. After the book was finished in the fall of 1954, Jackson wrote to her parents complaining about how tired she was. She was now able to take some time off for herself, especially since she still had some money rolling in from her previous books. But like many things, that wouldn't last long. Stanley knew how much the money from her writing contributed to their lavish lifestyle, so he constantly pressured her to keep writing. He grew impatient with her when she tried to explain that she was tired and she just needed some time off. So he would fill up her schedule for her by giving her books to read and signing her up for singing lessons, anything to get her creatively inspired again. You know what's inspiring? A goddang nap, Stanley! God! (laughs) Ugh. So, despite the financial pressure, Shirley couldn't seem to get another fiction novel started. Oh, I wonder why! Ugh. Instead, she was inspired by her kids again. 
She began putting together another list of essays that would eventually be published collectively in her sequel to Life Among the Savages, Raising Demons. But according to Ruth Franklin, as the children grew older, they could no longer be relied upon for adorable material. Because they get boring, you know, the older they get. (laughs) So Jackson increasingly sought out the humor in her own predicaments. More often than not, Jackson would embellish her accounts with her children in Raising Demons, but she wouldn't with her accounts of Stanley. In Savages, Stanley was just a bumbling idiot. But in Demons, he is depicted as a cheap man who couldn't make any money on his own and was dependent on Shirley's wages. Ooh. Yeah. Burn. Yeah, Stanley. (laughs) She also revealed him as an adulterer. Shirley felt that only the murderous Bluebeard would make a worse husband than Stanley. Wow, Shirley, I think you are the savage here. Good Lord. One truthful aspect of her life that she left out of demons was her weight gain. Shirley loved to drink and she loved to eat and she very rarely tried to seriously lose weight. Listen, relatable content. Yeah. Okay. She would go on crash diets every once in a while, but that only made everything worse. She would gain more weight and get more tired. The release of Raising Demons was successful, but it seemed that the reviewers saw past a lot of her embellishments. No matter, Shirley was about to write a novel about the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Just casually. The first... Completed hydrogen bomb went off near Bikini Island in March 1954. Everyone, including Shirley, was rightly freaked out. The sudden rise of science fiction in the 1950s and 60s was not a coincidence. This event, as well as her dire need to not be controlled by outside forces, inspired her to start working on her fourth novel, The Sundial. Shirley's book was special. The plot of the book is as follows. When the Hallorans gather for a funeral, no one is surprised when the somewhat peculiar Aunt Fanny wanders off into the garden. But then she returns to report an astonishing vision of an apocalypse from which only the Hallorans will be spared, and the family finds itself engulfed in growing madness, fear, and violence as they prepare for a terrible new world. (laughs) Yikes! The Sundial is arguably Jackson's funniest novel. Unfit characters are thrown into a situation in which they are supposed to deal with an event of great spiritual significance. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Shirley said that The Sundial was the favorite of all her finished novels, saying, Nothing I have ever written has given me so much pleasure. (laughs) I love writing about the end of the world. I love writing about death and destruction. I can imagine that being very cathartic. Yes. Yes. The Sundial received mixed reviews and didn't sell out upon its first release. Jackson decided to leave her current publisher and editor to seek out a new company for her remaining works. Goodbye. (laughs) She also began researching her next great novel, the one that would define her as a horror author for years to come. And here we go. It's time. The moment you've all been waiting for. I'm excited. <laughs> oh. 
So in 1957, a Harlem apartment building experienced a devastating fire in which three people were killed and five injured. It is believed that Shirley heard about this story very soon after it had happened and inspired her to think, how does a house become haunted? Hmm, these are the questions that haunt me. (laughs) So... She called her mother, Geraldine, and asked her to send photographs of the mansions her great-grandfather built for the rich and famous throughout the San Francisco area. She also began researching mansions in the Vermont area and was particularly in love with the Everett Mansion in Bennington. Shirley ultimately used the infamous Winchester House in San Jose as her inspiration, though. Nice. Now that she had her house, she needed ghosts. We're ghosts. (laughs) 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 No feet. (sighs) The story of a Long Island family plagued by a devilish poltergeist made the front page of the New York Times in 1958. Listen, you got to say it right. It's Long Island. Okay. A Long Island family. (laughs) (laughs) Investigators focused on one of the kids, Jimmy, who seemed to always be around when the paranormal activity took place. Jimmy. One of the incidents surrounding Jimmy was a shower of stones that fell on his family's home. What? And with that, Shirley dove deep into writing The Haunting of Hill House in the fall of 1958, finishing it in the spring of 59. During this time, Shirley and Stanley were at a breaking point. Shirley was the loneliest she had ever been in her entire life. She wrote countless letters to Stanley stating her depression and loneliness, but she never gave them to him. Instead, she portrayed her unwanted solitude in The Haunting, a novel about a woman who longs for a home, and even when she thinks she's found it, she must walk there alone. The protagonist, Eleanor, is an unmarried and unhappy woman sleeping on her sister's couch after the death of their sick mother whom she cared for previously. When Eleanor receives an invitation to help discover the supernatural mysteries of Hill House, she steals her sister's car, even though it is half hers, and makes her way to Hill House. There, she meets a number of characters. Dr. Montague, who is an occult scholar looking for solid evidence of a haunting. (laughs) Theodora, who is literally Eleanor's opposite. An empath, an artist, cheerful, confident, and whose partner's sex is purposefully never identified, though it is heavily hinted that she's a lesbian or at least bisexual. She also meets the young Luke, who is the future heir to Hill House, and the self-important Grace Montague and her friend Arthur, who are spirit writers. At first, their stay seems destined to be merely a spooky encounter with inexplicable phenomena, but Hill House is gathering its energy, and by the end of the book, it chooses one of them to make its own. Hill House is a literary horror masterpiece, and arguably Shirley's best novel. According to Ruth Franklin, as with all great ghost stories, readers have been divided over how to understand Hill House. Are the ghosts intended to be real, or are they the psychological manifestations of Eleanor, the book's most disturbed character? Franklin continues, saying, What Eleanor will face inside is not a haunting from another world, but a confrontation with the reality of her psyche. 
the world of her own secrets and fears. A major theme in the book is home or a homecoming, targeted at Eleanor, who has no home. She dreams of a place where she can call her own, where she can have two stone lions out front, like the homes that she passes on her way to Hill House. Once at Hill House, mysterious messages begin to appear like, help Eleanor come home, and when Grace Montague does a seance, she asks the ghosts, what do you want? And the reply in the spirit writing is, home. Readers have speculated that the haunted one isn't actually the house, but Eleanor herself. Ooh, it's like insidious. Yes, OG. Yes. Eleanor eventually succumbs to the house and repeats over and over, I am home, I am home, before she crashes her car into a tree and dies, haunting Hill House forever alone. Mm. Franklin states, like an abusive relationship or an entangled marriage of nearly 20 years, the house is both impossible to remain in and impossible to escape. Shirley's hope that marriage would bring an end to her loneliness turned out to be in vain, much like Eleanor's hope for a home turned out to be in vain. For the first time, Stanley refused to read Shirley's manuscript for Hill House. He found the concept far too frightening. Whoa. Probably for more reasons than one. Denial. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hill House was a huge success compared to Jackson's other novels. It did not make the bestsellers list, but it did sell far better than her previous works. The funds that came from the book and the eventual film rights were used to pay off the mortgage of their house and all of their other debts. Shirley could financially live comfortably again for the time being. Wow. Towards the end of 1959, Shirley wrote an article lamenting on the current dreadful state of children's literature. She claimed that children's books were no longer filled with magical kingdoms and adventure sagas like the ones she used to read as a child. This article got the attention of another housewife named Jean Betty, who lived in Baltimore. She wrote to Shirley, claiming to be a kindred spirit who knew just as much about the Oz books as Shirley did. Both women were desperately looking for someone to talk to who shared their same interests of fantasy, sci-fi, and contemporary literature. Shirley and Jean started off just talking about their favorite books by authors L. Frank Baum, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis, but eventually the conversations would become more intimate between them. Shirley even began telling Jean about her new book before telling anyone else. The book would be called... We Have Always Lived in the Castle. This is my favorite Shirley Jackson book. Ooh, yeah. According to Ruth Franklin, the novel Shirley was writing would ultimately center around two women who are perfect complements. One light, the other dark. One older, the other younger. One domestic, the other untamed. One sane, the other unhinged. Together, they form an inseparable, self-contained unit. Apart, they are vulnerable But as time went on, Shirley would stop hearing from Jean altogether. The silence had obviously saddened her, but she would continue to write to Jean while she wrote Castle. Shirley began to experience severe nervous breakdowns, self-doubt, and psychotic nightmares about a pact with the devil, and in early 1961, Shirley seemed to be sick with the flu, but the doctor ultimately determined that it was colitis a chronic inflammatory bowel disease that causes inflammation in the digestive tract. 
Shirley was embarrassed by her illness and hid it from Stanley, so she lived on Alka-Seltzer and Sulfa pills. Oh, yikes. According to a letter she sent to Jean, four people have read the first two chapters and all independently announced that it is the best work I have ever done. Shirley wrote to another friend, My book goes along so well that it scares me. I am most reluctant to give up my characters. Castle is told entirely from the first perspective of its title character, Mary Catherine Blackwood, or Mary Cat, as her sister calls her. Mary Cat is 18 years old, has a cat named Jonas, wishes she had been born a werewolf, and lives in a beautiful house with her older sister Constance and her senile uncle Julian. Through Uncle Julian's ramblings, the events of the past are revealed, including what happened to the remainder of the Blackwood family. Six years ago, both of the Blackwood parents, an aunt and a younger brother, were murdered, poisoned with arsenic, which was mixed into the family's sugar bowl and sprinkled onto blackberries at dinner. Julian, though poisoned, had survived. Constance, who did not put sugar on her berries, was arrested for and eventually acquitted of the crime. Mary Cat was not at dinner, having been sent to bed without dinner as a punishment. Shirley cleverly refrains from telling the audience that Mary Cat is the murderer, even though we all sense it's her, and instead focuses on her relationship with her beloved sister and the hateful villagers who live nearby. The two women live in domestic bliss, and Mary Cat sometimes talks about them going to the moon where they speak a special language to each other a place where no one can hurt them or tear them apart. When their terrible cousin comes to the house trying to find a secret fortune, all hell breaks loose. Although the inhabitants of the castle survive, the house is in ruins and the villagers, feeling awful for what they have done, leave offerings of food every day on the Blackwood girl's front doorstep. The burning house has worked as a magical cleansing. Uncle Julian, before the fire, dies of a heart attack, and the greedy cousin leaves with his tail between his legs. We are going to be very happy here, Mary Cat says to Constance. They will always live there, in the castle, together. According to Franklin, for the first time in Jackson's career, the critics were virtually unanimous. Castle was her masterpiece. Castle shot to the bestsellers list almost immediately upon release. Arguably, the best review came from poet and writer Dorothy Parker in her review of Castle in Esquire. She said, This novel brings back all my faith in terror and death. I can say no higher of it. Wow, what a review! Shirley was elated with all of the good news, but even with six published novels and two memoirs, she still felt that she had to prove herself to her mother, Geraldine, who wrote to her saying that the latest picture of her in Time magazine was horrendous and that she needed to start losing weight. Shirley wasn't thrilled by the photograph either, but she wished that her mother would just say one kind word to her, just one. Within a few months after Castle was published, Shirley had developed severe agoraphobia, much like the character Constance from Castle. After years of emotional stress and illness, she retreated to her home, where she would not leave for an entire year. Shirley sent one last bit of mail to her long-lost pen pal, Jean. Included was a copy of Castle and a letter reporting that Shirley's oldest son, Lawrence, had finally gotten married and had had his first child. Jean's letters had ceased without explanation. 
No one knows for sure why she stopped writing back to Shirley. Some think it's because she was too depressed in her own life. Either way, she kept all of Shirley's letters and opened them all too, except for that last one, which wasn't opened until after her death in 2013. Oh. It was a sad end to a beautiful long-distance friendship. Oh my god. Stanley, unsurprisingly, began seeing a student of his named Barbara, who was living with him and Shirley at the time. Uh, what? Before the affair, Shirley loved Barbara. Ugh. She was like another daughter, a sister, her Mary Cat to her Constance. She was a friend replacement for Jean, a companion. Stanley's other affairs were brief, but this one with Barbara was different. There was no doubt that they were falling deeply in love. Oh my God. When the affair was revealed, Shirley finally cracked. Joanne, Shirley's oldest daughter, remembers her parents fighting and her mother crying uncontrollably. Shirley was very drunk and screaming hysterically behind closed doors. Barbara had been her best friend. The revelation was traumatic. In the wake of the affair and the release of Castle, Shirley tried to write, but it proved to be extremely difficult for her. And every time she tried to leave her house, she was overcome with anxiety, to the point where her legs would shake and give way. Her terrible nightmares continued, and she suffered from crying fits and delusions that people were out to harm her. After a year, she was forced to see a quote-unquote fancy doctor <laughs> to help with her anxieties. At first, the doctor focused on her getting back into a routine, like getting groceries and getting the mail. Before long, her ability to get through the motions of everyday life was improving. However, she still wasn't writing. Mm -hmm. According to Ruth Franklin, that was the worst part. Worse than not being able to go to the post office or the supermarket or drive alone in a car. Shirley hadn't so much written a letter to her parents, let alone start a new novel. She felt that her problem was that she had no ideas and that this illness had given her writer's block. So, without any ideas for fiction, she started writing in a journal again. She wrote every morning during the winter of 63 and 64, and this seemed to help chip away at that writer's block. She began writing about an unnamed obsession that she had felt was too difficult to explain into words. She wrote about her fantasies of leaving Stanley and her children, and she wrote about a dream where she was given a picture titled Exodus. She journaled her thoughts on writing something different for once, maybe a happy book. She would never write this happy book, even though the last line in what would be her last journal is as follows, quote, laughter is possible, laughter is possible, laughter is possible. <sighs> In March of 1964, Shirley was writing fiction again, finally, and began work on a number of short stories in an essay for the Saturday Evening Post. She gave a triumphant lecture at NYU, and she also began work on what would be her last novel, a story about a New England woman who sends off nightly letters describing the terrible secrets of her neighbors. The book was called Come Along With Me. Jackson stated, I am beginning to be more myself again and more optimistic and enthusiastic than for a long time. Back to her roots in central New York, Shirley took the stage at Syracuse University in Gifford Auditorium, which is still there, hmm. and read the opening to her new novel, Come Along With Me. It was April 27, 1965. 
No longer the young student who dreamed to be a writer, 25 years later, she was a writer. By 1965, she was the author of all of these books for adults and children and numerous short stories. Now she had hundreds of Syracuse students swarming around her with questions on how to be just like her one day. No one could have predicted that in just three months, she would be dead. Ugh. The summer of 1965 was unreasonably hot, and Shirley found herself very tired and stayed home often. She was uncharacteristically calm, though. Nothing really seemed to bother her like before. Some of her close friends and neighbors said that she had a premonition that her death was approaching, but she wasn't scared. She seemed relaxed and happy. She called a few of her friends to let them know that she would be leaving soon to go on a wonderful journey alone. She never coughed up any of the details, but her friends knew that this would be no ordinary journey. On Sunday, August 8th, 1965, Stanley and Shirley took their regular nap after lunch. Stanley awoke, but Shirley did not. Several hours had passed, and Stanley became worried. He went back to the bedroom to try to wake up Shirley again, but she wouldn't stir. He even held a mirror under her nose to see if it would fog. It did not. Oh. Terrified, he asked their youngest daughter, Sarah, Sally, to check for him, just to be sure. And she confirmed the worst. Her mother, Shirley, was dead. The cause of death was heart failure, and Shirley was only 48 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so sad. And that's the life of Shirley Jackson. Wow. What a seriously incredible story. Like, Shirley Jackson, I feel, really lives on in modern horror in so many ways. Like, she's inspired an audience of young hopefuls, especially women, to overcome the odds and really make a name for themselves in a genre that was pretty much primarily run by men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She is, in my opinion, one of the greatest producers of horror content that spans across the decades of authors, film writers, directors. But the awesome thing is is that her work manages to stay relevant even now amongst all of our new technology and like all the special effects everything her work is so timeless because the horrors that she wrote about spoke to the human condition yes because they were her own horror like it was her own horror yes our primal fears um like uh, just our little agitations and stuff that can get so blown out of proportion sometimes Mm mm-hmm She was truly a gem among the world of horror literature because she captured the essence of our frightening humanity in such a way that it was accessible to anyone with a a library card and a hunger for stories of terror and suspense. And her writing wasn't pretentious or grandiose, but she had such brilliant tales to tell. Like, she was just incredible. Absolutely. Like, her work for me, too, is like, I just want to eat it. Like, it looks so good when I read it on a page. So, guys, that was Shirley Jackson. And if you had not heard of her before or if you have not read her work before, I hope that this has inspired you to check it out because she is amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, you guys, thank you all so much for listening to this very special episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts. It's awesome. So go to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click on the shirt icon and you will be taken to our shop. 
Yeah, and if you'd like some sweet extra content in your coffee, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy, and for just a few bucks a month, you can receive some fun extra content like bloopers from our show, new horror movie and trailer reviews, video reviews, and so much more. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app as well. Follow us on social media, Twitter at goodmorningnan, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Also, tell a friend, spread the word. And remember, guys, that's morning with an O-U. We love you all to death. Have a great morning. Bye.